0: Hi Kirko, hi everyone. Come up. How are you doing? Thank you for coming. Morning.
1: I literally just woke up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's good. That's even better. I mean, what then? That you're coming, even, although you just woke up. So. Wait. Let me make you a moderator. So uh, we will start in around five minutes. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. And we will talk about um, honeybee research um, from Dr. Osi Weller. And uh, yeah, looking forward to see how people are trying to save the bees.
2: Hello,
3: everyone. <coughs>
0: Hi Jamie,
3: how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Katina? Good,
0: good.
3: How's your day so far? Yes, yeah, so far so good. I was just uh rereading the uh the honeybee paper, the, the bees paper. Writing down some preemptive questions if we've got time for it. How about you? You yeah, so think my my is like mostly over, eh? well not, not almost about halfway done. How are you? What's right, doing?
0: but you were up so late. <laughs> <laughs> <That's amazing. laughs> yeah uh, my day was...
3: maybe you could do a paper on my brain one day Katerina.
0: Eh? yeah seriously I need more <laughs> sleep than you
3: yeah but you also work like 17 times harder than me so
0: <laughs> I don't know it's um easy. yeah my day you know it I did I didn't. Um, like you know, I went through emails and responded to stuff. Like drank some coffee, stuff like that.
3: That's your flaw. That. I drink tea exclusively. Coffee. Ah. That's that's your uh, downfall. That's... Coffee will destroy the world one day. <laughs> <laughs>
0: destroy the world. <laughs>
3: Katarina, see when you put up a room and then you it's finished and you, it's saved, you can't pin up anything new to it or anything, can you? Uh, add stuff to
0: it once it's yeah, done. Yeah, I'm so, so you, know how you,
3: pin, you know how you pin up the paper for the speaker, right? And so when anybody listens to the replay, they could look at the paper. Could a speaker be there, do this talk? The room be closed. It's now a replay. Could someone open up? Like, could we like open the replay and actually pin a new thing up? Like, an, no. Uh, you know, like no, no, it can't be done that way. Okay, right, right. That's good. Good to know, because I had a couple of ideas which are being scrapped now because of that. Right. Okay. Uh,
0: it's so cool that you um. That you are coming up with new no ideas and doing them. It's great
1: but ah. you could uh whatever you wanted to like change in the title you could just put that like when you share it you know what i'm saying give mm-hmm. me the room
3: do you mean like put put like a new link or something in the title when
1: it's being shared yeah well you can't put a link in the, in the share but i thought you were saying like like change the title like as like the presentation goes on or something uh, but I was saying, like, if you if that's what you're looking to do, you could always, uh, like, do that with like sharing. Like, if, if you share, you can put whatever you want to put in the title. There's not a
3: Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I was I was talking about like um like the doctor here today is to talk about the honeybees Hi, and opening. You know, oh, here we go. Hey, hello. Uh,
0: hey, hello. Thank you, Can you hear me? Okay. Can you hear us?
4: Can yep, you? I can hear you.
0: You're a little bit, hear... um far away from the microphone, maybe or um Uh, maybe your headset is on low or something we can hear you but it's very very Uh,
4: i'm just gonna try taking a a different microphone so how about now is that better so much better um you getting any reverb from anything you say because i've just taken the headphones out so if you talk maybe it will reverb but so far so good testing
3: testing I'm not hearing anything. you, Katerina?
0: No, no. Everything is perfect. Um, Okay, yeah. yeah. Clubhouse. uh, Jamie will laugh because I say this all the time. Uh, Clubhouse and really great, expensive headphones don't go together. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I thought I would do something wonderful and buy new headphones. So there's less background noise when I'm in the lab, but it did quite the opposite. It made everything worse, so.
4: Yeah, there might be a window that automatically closes in my office halfway through the talk. So if you hear that, <laughs> I do apologize, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I hope it was good for far. Yeah. <laughs> um, You so... already met Jamie and we have yeah. Well, and Serena,
5: they are one of our moderators.
3: Hello. How are, How are you, Serena? Good morning. Good morning. Pleasure speaking to you again, Doctor. Really looking forward to this talk. The paper is really interesting.
4: Yeah, I, uh, well, I could talk about this more in a minute, but I gave some thought because I haven't really ever really tried giving a presentation on audio only before. And so I was kind of debating how the best way to go about it would be. But I actually now think that maybe um, using a sort of more broad overview in terms of the talk, and then if there are specific aspects from the paper itself that people are interested in, I can then delve into those in detail because I don't know whether everyone will have access to the paper in front of them while I'm talking.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, Katerina's pinned it up there, and so... Um the people that they will read read along with you can read along okay. with you so um and that's that's actually a good idea though as well um because we you know, we have people of all different specialities here with us today as well, so um yeah that, I, I really appreciate your approach. that sounds really good.
4: okay, well, one thing I will do is I can potentially reference figures that are in the uh the paper if there's something relevant to what i'm talking about at that moment but if, but i don't want to make it dependent upon people being able to see those figures if that makes sense
3: that's actually perfect thank you that's actually the perfect way you could do
0: it great i think we can slowly start um, and um, yeah i think let's start the room uh, welcome everyone to the Science Society um, happy Friday everyone <laughs> and um, a special welcome to our guest speaker uh, Thomas uh, Oshie Weller and he will talk about his um, research of, about um, honeybees and making them more resistant uh, so we will have honeybees in the future Uh, It's a very important work, but first, before we start, let me give you a little bit of information. Dr. Thomas Schioweller, he is a research fellow at the Environment and Sustainability Institute at the University of Exeter. And he did his bachelor in science in biosciences at the University of Exeter and um, his PhD at the University of Bristol in biology. And he, um, he is interested in complex interactions that govern collective behavior, ecology, and self-organization within social insects. And um, his research um, is um, focused um, on the intersection between fundamental investigations of colony function and applied work in ecology and epidemiology. And um, he uses, um, he works with ants, honeybees, bumblebees um, as models um, to assess trends of ecological and organizational concern. Um, so uh, yeah, he's um, involved in different research projects around that. and. Um, yeah, welcome um, to the Science Society, Thomas. And if it's okay, Jimmy will ask you first a uh, few questions, and then we go ahead um, to um, you know the stage is yours for presenting your research here. Thank you.
4: Right.
3: Cool. Hello. First of all, officially, thank you very much again, Doctor, for coming and joining us. Um, your bio is really exciting and impressive, and you must have so many stories to tell. <laughs> um, but first of all, I'd like to ask, what is it that first got you into science in the first place and get into these kind of fields before we delve into the, the, the bee stuff specifically? When did you first decide that science was your calling and how did you get there?
4: Um, yeah, that's quite an easy one, actually. I, uh, when I was a little kid at school, I um, was always super interested in ants and uh, I like to uh, dig up paving stones and various other things to see what the ants were doing Um, and at the time I mean it was just you know playing around because I thought it was just fun to watch them you know going and putting a little bit of sugar solution or some jam and seeing how they'd congregate around it Um, but I never really grew out of that habit (laughs) I suppose you could say Um, and so what it I think was that fascinated me so much was the kind of complexity in their organisation and how that's in many cases quite similar to um, some of the things that human societies do.
3: That's actually cool. Um, And so is this what led you into then focusing on the bees and then your current paper and your current problem that you're working on? What got you into that specifically?
4: Well, More or less, uh, I guess, if, I, if, I, if I'm honest, uh, a lot of the sort of carryover into honeybee research um, is because honeybees are really, I suppose, the most economically important for the most part in terms of social insects, because obviously in many human systems and agriculture and uh, pollination are quite dependent on, on bees. So a lot of my uh, research focus had shifted more towards honeybees over time, um, just because there's demand and, and application. Um, whereas working more with um, bumblebees, some of the, the wild uh, species that we have in the UK, and, and working with ants, that's always been more of a sort of uh, theoretical interest aspect. So, work done there might not have some direct applied use, but bumblebee work, uh, sorry, honeybee work is always quite useful from an applied sense.
3: That's really interesting because I've heard of um, ants being looked at for behaviour and inspiring a lot of computer architecture and and behaviour and stuff like that. So uh, it's interesting that bumblebees are are, are what you're looking at for from a biological perspective. Right. Well, thank you very much for that. That's that's always um, appreciated that you would share that with us. And um, when you're ready, um, the stage is yours and please begin.
4: Okay, great. Um, right. I will start from the beginning, I suppose. W- what I'm going to try and do in this talk is keep it nice and concise and short and also aim more for a sort of high level overview of, of the work. And then if anyone has very specific questions that relate to um, things in the paper, um, then we can focus in on those um, at the end. So I uh, where this all really began and the the, the impetus for this work uh, stretches back to the commercial pollination industry in the United States. Um, we have something known as migratory pollination, which is where colonies of bees are moved around the country to provide pollination services for different crops as they come into bloom. Uh, the process is sort of often known as chasing the bloom, and it's incredibly important in terms of providing pollination services. And in fact, some crops like, for example, almonds in California, they're obligately dependent um, on honeybees being brought in to do this because there aren't any natural pollinators in the local environment. It's very big business, uh, but it's also an incredibly stressful system for bees to be in. And we can see this reflected in the fact that there's very high mortality on a yearly basis. There's a lot of various figures that you can you know, kind of throw around relating to this, but uh, I just have in front of me right now um, some values from the last two years of overwinter mortality for bees uh, in migratory operations. And they're coming in at 22.2% for a year ago and 32.2% for last year. And that's just over the winter. So it's quite a dire situation in that it's not very sustainable and also ends up costing a lot of money both for beekeepers uh, to be able to maintain their... their, um, colonies and also for other workers involved in the system because of all the support infrastructure that you need um, around the system just to keep the uh, bee colonies alive. Now, in terms of why exactly this happens or why mortality levels tend to be so high, it's a multifactorial um, problem as many things are in biology, but there are a few sort of prospective key culprits that often um, emerge from the scientific literature. And just to summarize very quickly some of those, we have uh, limited nutrition and forage. Because these in pollination operations are in agricultural environments, they often only have access to monocultures of different crops. And it's been shown to an extent that without the dietary diversity of pollen that they're used to, um, it can do various things that weaken their health and increase susceptibility to um, other factors that may harm their health. We then have um, pathogens and parasites. Both of these are a particular problem for large commercial operations because the colonies are often in very close proximity to each other. So as you can imagine, a bit like if we have battery hens or industrial uh, farming of any animal, the chance for disease and parasite transmission is greatly increased um, with concomitant effects on mortality. Finally, we have um, Two more human mediated aspects, there's uh, agrochemical exposure. So in agricultural systems, you have fungicides, pesticides um, and many other types of chemicals that the bees are likely or more likely than usual to be exposed to because they're constantly in these systems. Uh, And finally, management stresses because colonies are moved all around the United States and Canada on the back of trucks and also moved from one climate zone to another in a way that they would not really ever experience naturally. And so this also can take toll. So I've talked about these different problems that are faced by these, but today and in the work I'm describing, we're really focusing on one particular issue, which is Varroa mites. Um, Varroa mites, or to use their full name, Varroa destructor, which I think is a great name and it's pretty indicative of what they do, are really a focus of a lot of the um, breeding work that occurs in honeybees because they're widely known to be the largest threat to colony health. Um, A nice little fact that I often like to, to come up with to describe this is that almost all of the colonies in both commercial operations and just casual operations in the United States and Europe are likely to be infested by varroa mites to some level And in many cases, if they're not constantly treated with um, miticides to keep the mite levels under control, the mites will kill them, which is a very sort of bleak reality when you think about it. And so what we are very interested in from a research perspective is developing honeybees that are able to resist or at least control the population of these invasive uh, mites. And the reason that we think breeding is a great idea comes from a lot of different uh, aspects. But one interesting thing is that Varroa mites are an invasive species for European honeybees because their original host is the Asian honeybee, Apis serrana, which they are quite well adapted with. But when they hopped species to the European honeybee, Apis mellifera, um, the bees really didn't know how to respond to them and seemed to be largely oblivious to these mites so they can wreak havoc within the colonies. However, some of the behaviors that the Asian honeybees have to deal with mites are also present in low levels in European honeybees. So there's an ongoing demand to try and select for these sorts of phenotypes and breed it in to existing stocks of bees to uh, provide resistance. Now, the methods by which bees can be resistant to mites are quite varied and numerous. We have things like um, Varroa-sensitive hygiene, which is in large part, what we're going to be talking about uh, today. Um, This is a process where the bees can detect infested brood. and They'll uncap the cells um, and then remove the infested brood and throw them out with the mites in the cells. And that's very effective because the mites reproduce in the brood cells and all of the progeny mites and the male will die if the cell is opened. They can't survive outside. Only the female can survive outside. So by uncapping, cells and removing the brood, they, bees are able to stop the mite's reproductive cycle, and then they can never really reach these exponential levels that cause colonies to die. And there are various other adaptations, like bees that will attack the mites out in the open and bite their legs off, which is often known as the mite-biter phenotype of bees, whereas other behaviours such as swarming are also useful for keeping mite levels low. However, we find a sort of paradox that occurs with all of these Uh, breeding approaches is that it's not a zero sum game Mm -hmm. in that by selecting for particular characteristics to make them resistant to varroa we often lose the characteristics that we need to make them useful for beekeeping for example um colonies that swarm frequently are not very good from a beekeeper's perspective because they're almost untenable in terms of management they're swarming the whole time um bees that for example um Bite or remove the legs of varroa, the they don't necessarily have large colony sizes and don't necessarily produce a lot of honey. So, again, it sort of defeats the object to an extent if you're losing the uh, other characteristics that are desirable in the pursuit of mite resistance. So, we have that ongoing issue, um, and that's where the paper that we're talking about here comes in. We have basically been part of a decade-long or well, more than a decade breeding program to come up with a variety of bees that is both very resistant to varroa and also ideal from a beekeeping perspective in terms of those characteristics. And these bees are known as pole line bees, um, which is a somewhat uh, cheesy play on words from pole as in pollinators and line as in genetic line. And they've been bred in an interesting way, which is we've taken the VSH, or Varroa-sensitive hygiene behavior, this behavior of removing infested brood. That's been bred very strongly into the bees. And then they're outcrossed with existing um, standard commercial strains of bees that have really large colony sizes, honey production, and are nice and uh, docile. And so what you get at the end of that process from repeated year after year cycles of selection is bees that combine the best of both. So they're ideally resistant to varroa, but also able to produce nice large amounts of honey, very docile and nice to work with. And finally, colony sizes are large, which makes them great for pollination. So I think I actually have one of the materials um, provided with um, this talk that shows a pca analysis Uh, i'm just going to see uh in the materials provided where i what is labeled as so for anyone who, who has the uh the paper up the very last page of the provided material is there's an additional figure one and additional figure two additional figure one shows a genetic pca analysis of different stocks of b and it's quite interesting because it shows that pole bees and the quite closely related uh, sort of sister progeny stock called helo bees are very distinct from all the other stocks of bees that are currently being developed for mite resistance. And the reason that that's somewhat important is because it shows that through this intensive breeding, we've been able to really produce stocks that are incredibly distinct and not necessarily going to lose the characteristics that they have quickly through outcrossing. So it's it's a moderately um, robust outcome which i think is is one of the key goals right so we've talked about pole lion bees and how we bred them really to be good and have the best of both worlds in terms of both beekeeping characteristics and also mic resistance but it's all very well and good to say that we really need to validate these to make sure they actually do what they were uh, made to do in real you know commercial operations and in real Uh, scenarios where they might be used. And that's where this study comes in, in that we were aiming for a large scale um, nationwide in the US um, experiment, where we put the bees into varying different climate regions, because just because something performs well in one locality, it doesn't mean it's going to perform well everywhere. Um, We replicated the experiment with a large number of colonies, several hundred Um, and we took very detailed measurements across um, the course of a year to find out for colonies that died why they died and for colonies that survived why they survived so if we look at figure one in um, the paper and for anyone who doesn't have the paper in front of them figure one is a map of the united states um, showing where the bees were kept and where they were moved and the general experimental layout we had half of our colonies were the mite-resistant pole-line bees, the ones we wanted to test, and the other half were a standard commercial variety that's sort of the best currently available bee that's used for the most part in pollination operations. So we really wanted to see, you know, if we test the best currently available type against what we have produced, do we get any added benefit? And the colonies that we have, we... Conducted various um, manipulations to test different aspects. First thing we did was, for all of the bees we had in both stocks, half of them received a, a normal treatment for mites, so a miticide treatment for varroa, which is what would usually occur. So, so a standard um, mite treatment to keep mite levels low. The other half received this sort of minimal, reduced treatment which really would never usually occur. But the reason we had this other group is because we wanted to see, well, if we don't really treat them for mites properly, can they still survive um, due to their own ability to be for our resistance and how resistant and how does that compare to um, the current commercial varieties that they use? Finally, we had three different um, migration routes that we used just to look at the effect of Um, different scenarios in terms of crops that they were put among, and also in terms of climate. One of the um, migration routes was bees that were um, kept in Louisiana, Mississippi, moved up to South Dakota for honey production to see how well they produced honey, and then um, overwintered by being moved back down to the start point. The other group went up to South Dakota as with the um, first group. Then they went to California to overwinter and provide almond pollination in the spring before returning back to Louisiana and Mississippi at the end of the experiment. And the final group remained stationary. So they were for the most part in Mississippi for the whole experiment and not moved at all. So that sets the scene for how we went about um, devising and setting up a large scale experiment with the real aims of saying, How well do line bees survive compared to standard stocks? How much honey do they produce? Do they produce enough honey? Is it comparable? Um, How large are their colony sizes, especially in California? We want to be able to pollinate the almonds. And then finally, if we don't treat for mites properly, if we let mite levels get high, what is the result in terms of how line bees are able to perform them? So moving straight into some of these results. um, I think you can draw your attention for anyone with the paper in front of them to figures two and especially figure three, um, which are really showing the survival rate of the two stocks um, and also the levels of Varroa in the two stocks. And what we see is that in I think this is figure three A and B. commercial versus pole line varroa levels is that throughout the year, the varroa levels started to increase in both stocks. And then in the commercial colonies by September, levels of the mite infestation had gone absolutely sort of stratospheric and completely out of control, which resulted in killing a very, very high proportion of those colonies. However, for the pole line colonies, During the same period, very few colonies ended up with high mite levels. um, And in fact, they were able to survive a lot better and kept that varroa under control. Uh, And this was even worse when considering the colonies that weren't fully treated. It was pretty much a guaranteed death sentence for commercial colonies, uh, not so for line colonies. And the overall outcome of this, when we just looked at both of the stocks and, and compared survival rates was that the commercial colonies had very poor survival but the pole line colonies had roughly doubled the level of survival so there were double the number of pole line colonies alive at the end of the experiment compared to the commercial stock which is great from our perspective because this is really the worst scenario that we could put them through um then looking at honey production uh which i think is to an extent covered in figure two but again for anyone without the uh Figures we found that honey production was equivalent between the two stocks and colony size was also uh, roughly the same. But in reality, because far more of the poline colonies survived, they did produce more honey and had larger colony sizes overall. Um, So that kind of is interesting from looking at the survival perspective, the health and varroa levels, but we also um, conducted some analyses of some of the pathogens, specifically viruses, and the levels present in the 2 stocks throughout the experiment. Um, that is, I believe, mostly covered by figure three, C and D. Um, but what we found was that when looking at four major um, honey bee viruses, we had black queen cell virus, chronic bee paralysis virus, and deformed wing virus A and B variants. What we found was that deformed wing virus A and B, there were broadly uh, reduced levels in pole line colonies which makes sense because these are Varroa-transmitted viruses. So we would expect lower levels of Varroa means lower levels of the viruses. For chronic B-paralysis virus, there was really less of a trend here, which again makes sense because chronic B-paralysis virus is potentially somewhat transmitted by Varroa, but it's not the main pathway. Whereas for black queen cell virus, which is not transmitted by Varroa, um, there was really no difference between the two stocks. Um, And that kind of begs the question then is why... Um, or exactly what do we think is going on with these polline colonies having much lower viral levels. And it appears that it's nothing to do with resistance to viruses. Um, If for anyone who has the uh, uh, document with them, additional figure number two shows some comparative viral titer uh, estimates for when bees of each stock were injected in the lab directly with viruses. We see that really um, polline bees aren't any more resistant resistant to the viruses themselves than are uh, Italian or really any other stock. Um, And so really what's actually happening is that the reduced virus levels are due to reduced um, for mediated transmission due to lower mite levels. So that worked out quite nicely in terms of being able to see where the mechanism that was occurring here was, was, uh, how was it working. Um, But on top of that, In terms of the reason for lower Varroa levels really improving the health of colonies, it's not just the viruses that are transmitted by Varroa mites, but it's the act of feeding itself that does a lot of the damage. And for a long time, it was thought that Varroa mites fed on the hemolymph of bees, which is their blood effectively. But some recent work showed that this actually wasn't the case and that Varroa mites mainly feed on the lipid body, the fat body of bees. And this is pretty significant because the fat body of a bee is quite analogous to sort of the liver um, of of a human. It, It acts as a detoxification role. And so if a varroa mite, and bear in mind that compared to the size of the bee, the mite is almost the size of the bee's head, so it's a massive parasite, begins feeding on the fat body of the bee, it's doing a lot of physical damage to that bee and also making it vulnerable to any other processes that may uh, affect toxicity. So we see that feeding alone does a lot of damage in and of itself. And I think one of the interesting takeaways from that particular result is that when we're thinking about ways to deal with both viruses and with Varroa, we should often really think about focusing on the Varroa because it's the, the upstream factor because it does damage but it also transmits viruses so if we just focus on viruses we even if we can completely uh, remove or find a a cure or treatment to a particular virus it's not going to solve the problem with the varroa doing a lot of damage by feeding however if we take varroa out of the picture we stop that direct route of damage by feeding and we also as a corollary remove all the viral transmission that's uh, conferred by that so one final, um, I think, interesting takeaway uh, from the particular piece of research that we were surprised to find somewhat was that when we analyzed the relative importance of Varroa versus viruses, it seemed that viruses actually most of the time, or the, the vectored viruses, weren't very good at predicting whether a colony survived or died. It Didn't seem that the level of virus was that indicative of what happened to the colony. Whereas the level of Varroa was, And we were able to look at this because we could select out colonies that had the same level of varroa, but differing levels of virus, and vice versa. And the reason that's quite interesting is because it's not something that was widely thought to be the case in the literature before. I think often varroa mites are kind of seen as primarily a vector of viruses, and that's how they do the damage, a bit like, you know, a a mosquito's. May um, kill people through transmitting malaria. It's not the mosquitoes feeding itself that does the damage. However, with Varroa, I think actually it might be much more shifted in the opposite way, whereas the viruses are sort of a secondary effect and the feeding itself is what is causing a lot of damage, which again is a useful thing to know because, like I mentioned earlier, when we're thinking about ways to practically deal with Varroa mites, um, it's good to know that we should aim for the mite rather than necessarily the pathogens that come as a secondary factor. So overall, we're quite pleased with the results because it provides at least some evidence initially for a sort of sustainable solution to um, varroa mites. But the key thing really is that we have current treatments that we use against the mites, um, amitraz and to a lesser extent, I believe Kumaphos products that are used as miticides but the mites are developing resistance to these products so it's it's something of a race race against time really because we're not coming up with any new chemicals to use against them and as mite resistance levels to these um, miticides increase over time they're becoming less and less effective and having to be used more and more Um, so having some other mechanism by which uh, bees can be resistant is incredibly important and in fact for varroa mites, they can often evolve quite rapidly um, against chemical mechanisms of harm um, because they have high levels of inbreeding and rapid population uh, cycle time. So if there's a change in a potassium channel gate or some such that only requires uh, a small level of mutation, then it will likely uh, occur and proliferate. However, becoming resistant to the behavior of the bees that are detecting and removing the mites, that's a lot harder and that's a something that can't evolve nearly as quickly so it's it's more sustainable in many cases to um, let the bees kind of do the job for you rather than needing to apply more chemicals and then finally along with that it's i think more environmentally sustainable because you're just having to reduce the amount of beekeeper intervention and the, the amount of products that you're using uh on your bees and that are making their way into the environment okay so to sum up um where i think future research will be going now Um, we've learned quite a lot from this first piece of work but we have um, another year of data that we're currently working on um, for the second year of this study and um, we're really interested in providing better prediction models in terms of being able to predict risk factors and when you need to um, intervene to um, deal with these risk factors so like level of treatment for varroa mites, um, whether certain pathogens or parasites, at what level or at what situation do you need to be worried about those and really try and uh, act and treat your colonies. And also what uh, weather patterns and management regimes are good or bad, and taking that from a sort of probability distribution approach rather than just binary yes, no results. Um, And on that note, I could probably draw your attention to the Figure six, I think it is the final figure in the uh, paper. That's just a nice little scale looking at levels of varroa and colony outcome. The reason that's slightly interesting is because currently when it comes to treating varroa mites, often there's a rule of thumb that you should treat your mites if you have an infestation level of three mites per hundred bees. Um, And we really were kind of finding that that is not conservative enough. Really, by then, a lot of damage is already done. And I think this is something that requires further investigation in terms of telling at what point you actually need to um, take control measures and, and deal with some of the emerging risk factors. Because when it comes to mites and other parasites and pathogens, the growth and the way these grow in the colony is often sort of an exponent where once they reach a certain level, they just completely take off and are likely to do a lot of damage very, very quickly. So a final note, this isn't particularly covered in the paper, but I thought it would be a nice add-on at the end, is that having uh, had this and additional years since this work was done of um, successful tests for Polline line bees, we have started to really roll out a program to make them available, um, or the queens from this genetic line available to um, beekeepers and bee breeders. And that is the Hilo Bee Program. So Hilo bees are a derivative of poll line. Um, really, the only difference is that they're being bred in a program in Hawaii to make as many queens available on a yearly basis as possible, and then to distribute those um, at least at a preliminary level to beekeepers um, and there's a pretty nice website that they have set up at the moment helobees.com where you can see more information on that um, but the takeaway i think that's really nice here is that Hilo bees and poll line bees they're not just bees that can be used by commercial beekeepers and by large operations but even just hobbyists who want to keep bees, they're ideal because they require a lot less uh input and management than many other stocks of bees because they they can be resistant to any uh varroa that's coming in in the local environment and they take care of themselves and they're also nice and gentle uh so <laughs> i recommend them and i like working with them for that reason um so yeah that's that's kind of where we're going at the moment is just we've had some quite nice successful tests and we're really just interested uh in providing some more tools but also rolling out some of these um, resistant bees to beekeepers so I'd probably just like to wrap up by um, thanking all of my collaborators, especially at the USDA Honey Bee Breeding and Genetics Laboratory in Louisiana, um, LSU the University that we also collaborated with, um, and finally the University of Exeter where I'm based now, um, and all of the other field personnel and colleagues uh, in the US who, without whom this work would not have been possible. So I think that brings for the most part, my talk to an end, and I'm happy to take any questions you have and any further discussion that you might be interested in.
0: Thank you so much, Thomas, for this amazing presentation and this very important and interesting research. First of all, I'm not sure if I'm the only one, but I was so amazed about the span of uh, migration. Like, do they how long do they take for i'm sorry to ask this i know we are mostly focusing on um on the resistance um and fighting of um varroa but how long do they take for these migration cycles Um...
4: um yeah so in terms of the Well, there's two aspects. There's the travel time, and then there's how long they spend in various areas. And it does vary from uh, operation to operation, but it's pretty extensive. So on the back of a truck, it can take several days to move these from one location, several thousand kilometers, several thousand miles up to another one. Um, And then once they're there, they usually spend a few months in Uh, these different environments so in almonds uh, in the spring they'll usually be moved out for um, most of the winter and then through the whole of the spring when the almonds are in bloom where they provide pollination so several months and then once the almonds finish blooming they'll be moved back uh, to wherever they uh, were originally based in the dakotas i mean for example i think we kept three or four months in South Dakota, just so that they can really start foraging in the local um, vegetation that's available there and and various crops and build up a large amount of honey. Then that honey is um, harvested. And after that's done, they're usually moved because South Dakota gets, as you can imagine, quite cold uh, in the winter. Um, So yeah, it's a a multi-day process quite often just in the transit time. So does
0: Varroa vary? Um, you know I'm sorry about being so ignorant in this field but you know when let's say you have kids right um, and you move to another school uh, kids get constantly sick like the first couple of months because um, the cold um, viruses and things like that um, slightly vary so uh, is is that also a contributing factor of moving them around and having maybe different slightly different types of varroa
4: um so the in terms of the, the sort of effect you get with children you know where they pick up a different strain of uh, cold or flu i wouldn't say that that is the case with varroa because all bees or all european honeybees are super susceptible to varroa varroa's Kind of like a zoonosis so it's it's gonna infect or infest and destroy colonies regardless of where you get it from but the second part of that is the point that in different regions there could be different sort of endemic levels of varroa. so let's say you moved your bees to an apiary in one region where there were other apiaries and people had completely infested colonies so a bit a better maybe a better analogy would be head lice. You know, if you send your children to a new school and it, everyone's riddled with head lice, then they're probably going to get head lice as well and be exposed to it. So there are these sort of potentially dangerous situations uh, where they're moved into areas with uh, higher levels of infestation, and that can be a real problem.
5: Uh, I have a question. Here, Thomas. What are the precautions that I should be taking? Like, I uh, um, and... You have these honeybee wombs right or whatever whatever that you call them so now as an individual what are the precautions that i should be taking
4: you mean the precautions in terms of um varroa treatment or or uh dealing with the potential threat of varroa i would say there's well there's two recommendations that, that i can give and i mean depending you may already do this but um the first thing is testing your bees to see how infested they are and that's i mean one way well there's multiple ways to do this but popular methods include having a board under the colony and then mites or a, st- a kind of sticky board and mites that fall off the bees will drop down onto that board and then at a set amount of time say a day or two you count the number on the board and then there's a lot of literature available and a lot of guides available to say you know how much is a problem or how much is too much the other method probably i would say a preferred method is that you take a sample of bees from your colony um and then you can cover them in powdered sugar and shake them and that will make the mites come off of those bees Um, and then you can again count the number of mites you're getting and as long as your sample size is roughly equal each time so if you use a container of the same size um, you can tell what level of error you have and if it gets too high, um, using a treatment such as amatraz, coumaphos, or a number of other uh, options, quite a few options available um, to control mite uh, levels. And there's a lot of literature available on guides on the internet um, and also uh, beekeeping
5: societies will have information on that that can help. Can I ask a quick Follow up question on this. uh, Thank you, Thomas. And thank you, Katerina and uh, uh, other people in this club. Um, When you take the sample size and then you cover with the powdered sugar and the mites come off, do you lose those bees as well?
0: Thomas, uh, you're muted. I'm not sure if you are maybe talking. Uh,
5: sorry. Uh, yeah, just <laughs> sorry. <time>. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. I'm solo. I'm solo. Yeah, so we didn't hear anything, Thomas. Thank you. So to, to answer your question,
4: it's it's a very good question. And that's actually why I would recommend the powdered sugar method, because it, it won't kill the bees. Um, if you do that, once you've sort of shaken them up and got a night count off of that, you can return them to the colony, and the other bees will usually lick them clean. Um, There are other lethal methods which are quite commonly used. So some methods include soaking the bees in soapy water so that the mites fall off, but of course that kills the bees um, or using um, various other solvents like alcohol. But if you're not aiming to do, to kill a few hundred bees every time you sample, which you don't really want to do, especially if you don't have very large colonies, the powdered sugar method is preferable in that regard.
6: Uh, Hi, uh, doctor. I actually live in the Central Valley of California near the almond farm. And uh, I'm not a farmer, but I hear those guys uh, talk about the colony collapse disorder. Is this parasite uh, one of the causes of the uh, colony collapse? Or is that a different problem?
4: Yeah, that's uh, an interesting question. Colony collapse disorder is quite a specific phenomenon, which I would argue is quite rare. But because it's called colony collapse disorder, it often gets confused and misreported. Uh, Colony collapse disorder refers to um, a spate of cases that appeared um, a few years ago where the colony appeared to be completely dead or absent a queen and there were just a few workers left hanging around and i I don't believe that it was ever really pinned down what caused that but the interesting fact about it is that most of the colonies that die or you could say that collapse um we know why they die and it's because of varroa mites uh starvation or pathogens and so really In many cases, it's possible that what was reported as colony collapse was was caused by Varroa mites. But the interesting thing about colony collapse disorder as a phenomenon was it was kind of um, mysterious and unaccounted for. Um, So I don't know whether that completely answers your question, but long story short, most of the collapses of colonies that occur, most colony deaths are due either directly or indirectly to
6: Varroa or um, other known factors. Uh, yeah, uh, sometimes I feel that the beekeepers are just uh, hiking up their prices, blaming <laughs> colony. <laughs> 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 well, see, uh, years ago, you know, so I I know you know so some of these farmers. So they, they they rent the the beehives, right? So years ago, it's like like fifty dollars per uh, beehive, and now it's like two hundred something per beehive, and, and actually has gotten to be a problem because those beehives are now getting stolen so they actually put uh, like gps trackers and, and surveillance cameras to, to you know to make sure that those don't get stolen <laughs> and that's just an aside
4: <laughs> yeah quite an interesting uh, phenomenon we we also had to kind of deal with this side of things because the operation we were working with like, they have a lot of colonies and they're kind of prime game for people to nick uh, and steal them just because they're all in one place quite often. So, we came up with various inventive solutions to uh, to stop that um, from happening. But yeah, it's very big business. And a final note on that is that the price of a colony is very much determined by the size of the colony. So beekeepers make an absolute premium on very large colonies with a lot of bees in, and so that's often what they're interested in um, having as an end product. They want stocks of bees that produce really big colonies.
6: Yeah, thanks.
5: Thanks, doctor. I love the GPS tracker idea. Um, I had a very general question. And thank you so much for this talk. Would you have any advice for the hobbyist just wanting to get started in say, the Central Florida region?
4: Um, Yeah, Uh, one thing I would say is, if you're really starting out, try, first of all, to locate other beekeepers, especially other hobbyists or societies, and talk to them about getting particular queens or um, starting up from scratch. Because one sort of mistake that I think is often made by beginning as a hobbyist is that there are a lot of sources available to buy queen bees from. And I wouldn't quite go as far as to say that they're sort of relying on people not knowing what they're doing, but you can end up buying queens from quite poor sources that will invariably end up uh, with bad outcomes, like they don't produce enough brood and the colonies die, or they're very aggressive, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So invariably, beekeeping societies and local—I'm sure in Florida there's 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 plenty. Um, they'll already have a lot of information on you know what bees do well in our local environment, what reputable breeders are there, you know where do we get ours from, what can we recommend. Um, and that is very invaluable. I mean, even if you're just shooting them an email or something and saying, you know, I'm starting out, do you have any recommendations on where I, where I get bees from, et cetera? The other thing I would say is uh, try to start uh, manageable and small. So one or two <laughs> colonies, we've had a few people who get a little bit over enthusiastic and uh, end up taking things on more than they can manage. And it's like, you know, dog is not just for Christmas, it's for life. Well, a bee colony is a l- often... <laughs> potentially a lot more dangerous than a dog <laughs> and may require a lot more expertise so, so starting small and being informed by uh, local beekeepers is really useful i think i have, oh, a, question to...
2: um, I have a question here. can
0: i uh, i would like to read out a question from the chat first please um, on, krishna um, krishna she asked um thomas uh, can the mites be led somewhere else like can there be a source of what the nodes um, want? Um, so um, they, the one of the bees go to the source to access what they want more easily, uh, pi- Piper style. Um, I hope I, I read the question right, Krishna. Uh, do you see the question, uh, Thomas, in the chat? Are uh, you still on mute in, in case?
4: Sorry, I'm just looking uh, to see the yeah, if I can find it.
0: Um, it's all the way on the left hand. There's like a 13 and a little bubble, speech bubble, on the bottom of your screen. Now it's 14. Can you, can you see that? I'm not sure you're on the desktop app, so...
4: I did, uh, you know, I actually can't, so yeah, because the desktop's different, but I I just realized what the question was asking while I was <laughs> thinking about okay. it. Okay. So it was, can, no. mites be led away from the majority of the bees in a sort of pied piper fashion by something that attracts them or another bee. Um, I don't know, because I don't think that that's ever been attempted, um, but what I would say is that the mites are attracted the most to drone brood because drone bees have a much longer maturation period in the cell. And so the mites really like to infest their particular cells because it gives more time to reproduce. So there is one method that uh, is sometimes used called sacrificial uh, brood where they take drone brood or the beekeeper takes drone brood and sort of lets all the mites infest the drone brood and then takes that out the colony and freezes it to kill the mites. But of course that also kills a bunch of uh, developing drones. So I guess that's the closest thing that exists uh, to that kind of methodology. Yeah, great,
2: thank
5: you, Uh, Yeah. Can I go ahead and ask you a question? Uh, uh, Let me just,
0: um, yes. Um, uh can I ask do you uh, by any chance work with Glenn Jeffrey from UCL um, University College London He um, he works on this deep red light uh, exposure um, in humans but he was a guest speaker here a while ago and um, he also talked that he was uh, working uh, with bee colonies to like improve their health, um, and um, do you know by any chance his work? A deep red light basically improves, I guess, um, immune system and rejuvenation. So basically, you're healthier if you get exposed, like for two minutes a day or something.
4: Um, I yeah, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with um Ben's work, but I'll I'll definitely look him up now. Um. I guess one thing we do know, well, I say no, one thing that is interesting about bees, and I don't know whether this is deep red light, but when it comes to red light, a lot of the experiments we do where we want to observe bees without disturbing them too much, we use red filtered um, observation glass or panels because it seems that they they respond a lot less to light coming through a red filter than they do to standard daylight. Um, It's in the case of ants, for example, it's nearly invisible to them. For many species and for bees it seems that there's it might not be invisible to them but it's definitely less disturbing to them so i guess that's some overlap there but i'll i'll, I'll check out uh, his work and see what i can find there
0: yeah apparently you know in humans he started it improves like um the eyesight in elderly uh people so apparently the mitochondria gets kind of rejuvenated um, by deep red light and it's only like a minute and a half a day in the morning it only works when you do it in the morning apparently mitochondria have also a sick in rhythm rhythm uh and we don't know exactly why and then he kind of i uh, i don't know how he came about it to apply this to honeybees and i think he's working in france uh with some farmers there and it seems to be improving their health so Yeah, it would be interesting. Thank you. And Varun, please go ahead. But I wanted to check if Kirko, Christopher, if you have first a question because they didn't get the chance to ask yet. And Jamie.
5: Uh, Thank you, Katharina, for giving me this opportunity to ask this question. So kind of you. Anyways, uh, like, uh, now how do I know whether the bee is the queen bee or not? Like, uh, are there any physical attributes involved?
4: Uh, you mean in terms of identifying the queen bee?
5: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
4: Okay. Uh, yeah that's quite easy. Um, so queen bees are larger than workers and their um, gaster, so the end part of the bee is, is elongated because they have very large ovaries to produce all the eggs. But what is normally done um, among beekeepers is that once they find the queen bee in a colony, they mark her with a dot of colored paint. So that way the next time they want to look in the colony they can check out and find the queen very easily to make sure she's in good health
5: oh okay uh, uh one more
6: question here like uh...
0: um sorry let's move on to kirko uh i want to make sure that everyone gets a chance to ask here and jamie and christopher thank you
1: yeah so i was like kind of curious um when you were talking about um like the like using like the uh asian bees that are like are resistant to
3: um the ferola destructor uh so i was kind of like interested or curious like if you do that does that not dilute like because like half of the genes that that the offspring would be getting will of course be from the asian um the asian uh bees does that not change the viability of the bees that you're crossing that bee strain into
4: So um, yeah, I, th- I think I understand the question, So, so a quick point, we're not crossing uh, European honeybees with Asian honeybees to make um, uh, pro-resistant bees. What we're actually doing is we're looking to see if some of the behaviors that Asian honeybees uh, used to deal with or whether those behaviors are also present in in European honeybees to an extent and then we're trying to amplify those through selective breeding just of the European honeybees so it's a bit like when it comes to uh, for example species of uh, or even just stocks of cats or dogs or varieties you'll find that there's a lot of overlap in things that they do and behaviors and characteristics Uh, but some of them may be expressing these things to a higher level than others, and that's the difference. So you can try and amplify any given particular trait uh, within a single uh, species or stock, and then get that to a point where it's expressed almost as much as it would be in the other species, but you haven't had to cross any of them in terms of the actual uh, Asian versus European honeybees.
1: Sweet, thank you. And then just a quick question for you. Where do they actually pick the mites up from? I mean, is it environmental from the the flowers they're pollinating or do they just spontaneously come to the hives?
4: It's a bit of both. Um, The mites can sort of hop off of a foraging honeybee onto a flower. Um, There was some quite interesting uh, work where they showed that sometimes mites will wait a flower and then when another forager comes from a different colony they'll jump on her and she'll take her back to the hive and then the whole thing kind of starts again but that's probably not the main way that they end up being spread around you think probably one of the key ways is through something known as worker drifting so if you're a beekeeper and you have an april a lot of colonies in and there's workers flying in and out and foraging sometimes a worker will accidentally go back to the wrong colony and they'll accept her but if one colony is very infested, it will end up with a sort of uh, bit of a transfer of some, some bees accidentally going to other colonies and then they get infested as well. And then finally, on top of that, we have another issue which is that some practices in the uh, beekeeping industry um, will necessarily result in uh, spread of disease. So for example, there's practices involving moving frames brood or other things from one colony to another to boost the health while they're infested as you can imagine it's a bit like getting a contaminated transplant in that you're then going to get whatever the contamination is and in this case it's varroa mites and finally this is (laughs) really quite an extreme practice but in some cases colonies are made by taking a kind of bunch of workers from many different host colonies throwing them all together and then adding a new queen so that will establish a new colony and as you can imagine doing that again there's a high risk if the colonies the source colonies are already infested that it just kind of plants the seed for more infestation
1: thank you,
5: yeah. like, you know, uh, when, when you know in new colonies
0: um jamie did you have a question i saw you on the mic
3: Oh I I, I, I did. But if he wants to ask really first um, I'm going to be blast blast through my questions as fast as I can but if um, if he wants to go first I don't mind. Quick.
0: Uh Thomas do you still have uh, some time or do you do you have to leave because you know it's about an hour that we went about so do you still have time for a few more questions? you're on mute sorry
4: sorry (laughs) (laughs) yes i i can take a few more questions
2: i have one when when you're finished uh uh, in queue
0: um yeah uh so maybe jamie z and krishna if that's okay
3: okay great Uh, this is actually an amazing talk doctor i've actually got a whole bunch of questions but um I'm gonna try and blast through as many as I can, quickly as I can. Um one of the questions I'm gonna uh, I suppose a three-parter. Um I'm wondering what is the behavior of the mites? Do they behave like bees? Do they have colonies of their own? Do they have bees um do they have like credence or whatever of their own? Is there any way that, that behavior of the mites itself could be monitored and exploited? Um and the second part here is could there be anything is to like the fat could there be anything given to the bee that's kind of fairly harmless to the bee but it's like in the facts i've heard of you know you, you eat stuff You what you eat has been stored in your fat so if they, if they consume something that's distasteful to the bees and sorry the mites then they eat the fat they go i <clears throat> don't like that um and thirdly this more of an observation question is um, is this really a race between adaptation between the bees and the mites? Because you did mention how the um, you were seeing if the bees could adapt in time to kind of counter the mites. But of course, the mites are clearly adapting to um, pesticides and stuff like that. Thank you.
4: Um, yeah, great, great set of questions. Um, to start with the first one in terms of the mites, just biology and whether we can sort of utilise that against them. The mites are, well, they're very strange in their biology. The way that their life cycle really works is that they're not um, colonial. They don't have queens and workers or anything like that. Um, What they do have is that an individual, you have a foundress and she's the female. And varroa mites, it's all about really the female mites because the male and um, the young mites are all very vulnerable, but the female, she's red, and she's got a sclerotized exoskeleton, so she can exist outside of the colony, she can exist anywhere, really, whereas the male and uh, young ones need to be in a brood cell. So what happens is, the female will found a brood, or, or inv- invade a brood cell, usually by piggybacking off of another bee into the uh, open cell while it's tending the larvae, that cell is then sealed, as it's a normal process, but then The uh, female is in there, and (laughs) she will uh, have progeny, um, and the progeny will include males and females, and then those (laughs) progeny will begin a sort of incestuous reproduction process where sisters mate with their own brothers, which is interesting because it results in very fast reproductive cycles, and the inbreeding actually seems to increase their ability to mutate and adapt to um, stress factors. So that's going on inside the cell on the developing brood, usually slowly killing the brood as they feed on it and spread a lot of disease. And then when the brood emerges as as an adult bee and the cell is opened, all of these mites that are new females come kind of shooting out into the colony and the whole process begins again. And so you end up with this kind of exponential mite growth that occurs um, over time. And I'm sorry, I've already I've forgotten what your second question was. Oh no, no, no
3: problem. Just I'm just gonna say that's actually incredible. I've never heard of um like the, the inbreeding like that to be an advantage. That's actually quite incredible. Um the second one was about the the fat. Like could could the bees be given anything um to make the fat distasteful to these mites if they're eating the fat and that's a big problem.
4: Um yeah, I think there is some research. I don't know whether it's been published yet, but um uh, Samuel Ramsey, who is actually the researcher who discovered that the fat bodies were the um, the, the food source for the mites, they were trying to develop some, um, I can't remember whether it was pesticides or uh, RNA interference, um, but it, anyway, they were trying to develop agents that the bees could consume harmlessly, but then would become accumulated in their fat bodies, like you mentioned, and then when the varroa feed on them, it either kills the varroa or makes them uh, infertile. Um, so there's, there's definitely a line of research that's aiming to sort of leverage that particular um, aspect and, and to help try and control the mites. And sorry, again, the first- That's fantastic.
3: And then the last, the last one would only just me kind of more of an observation is, is this like a race against a uh, time about adaptation? Because you were saying before how you were seeing if the bees could survive, just kind of letting it rip. With these mites, could they adapt in time to counter it? But obviously, the mites are becoming more adaptive to the pesticides and and, and your strategies faster than the bees are adapting to the mites. That was my just question yeah. slash observation.
4: Um, that is something that we've really been bearing in mind from the get-go so sort of what sounds like you're sort of partly referring to sort of red queen hypothesis where it's the constant evolutionary arms race between parasites uh, or pathogens and their hosts so what we need to remember in honeybees is that we have this really weird situation where honeybees like humans to an extent are really quite decoupled from natural selection because beekeepers are the ones you know looking after them and breeding them So a colony of honeybees that might die in the wild um, might survive because a beekeeper treats them, you know, with miticide or gives them extra food. So we have all these honeybee colonies kept by beekeepers that aren't adapting to anything. And then along comes a new invasive uh, parasite, the Varroa, and they're just not ready for it. And they never will adapt because they'll treat them with miticides. So you really have this kind of stalemate, where the, well, not stalemate, the bees are stagnating, they're not adapting, and the mites will just wreak havoc. So that's where the selective breeding comes in, because we can use that to artificially sort of speed up the process to make already adapted bees. And the final point on that is that we see that the mites, partly we think because of their inbreeding, um, often develop mutations that basically make them resistant or resilient to chemicals. Um, and the the risk with that is that you can often have a very small amount of mutation can suddenly make something ineffective. But because the bees are using a complex behavior to uh, detect and remove the mites, um, that's a lot harder for the mites to evolve against. And on top of that, because the mites are often getting just eliminated from a colony, you never get enough surviving, you know, to get around the, uh, uh, behavior. And in fact, it's worked very well for Asian honeybees because they still exist, uh, sort of coexist with varroa mites because the varroa mite levels never get high enough in their colonies to uh, destroy them. So they reach kind of equilibrium.
3: That's amazing. I've got so many more questions, but thank you very much. I'll, I'll, I'll yield the floor. Thank you, Doctor. Uh,
0: Z and Krishna, had questions. Please go ahead.
5: Um, hi, this is Z and um, uh, uh, actually, my questions were just answered. So thank you very much, Thomas. Please uh, come back if you can. Thank you.
2: Yes, um, cheers, Catherine. Yes, I think Jamie kind of asked the question about um, can can they consume something they don't like? Because I notice when I go to India, say, I get bitten by mosquitoes. And, I, and I'll be in the same space as um, say somebody else uh, my other family member that's originally from india and they get they no one bite like they get they don't get bitten at all and i just find that crazy because we'll be sharing the same space maybe even the same bed and i'm bit i wake up bitten all over and it's it's been said that we could consume marmite and that would like ward them off because they don't like the taste or smell or something um i think it's a bee is it a bee 12 i think i can't remember or b2 or something like that so yeah jamie asked a question but i you said there's a line of research um and that's where my my thinking was coming from um and yeah that's great to know about the whole evolution to bring an equilibrium i think that's probably the best because you mentioned why that's not possible at the moment with breeding um and then there's just one more thought process was well, I don't know whether I agree with this ethically, just from my own kind of <clears throat> point of view. But um, can there can there be like uh, selectively selectively targeted uh, using some kind of energy um, beam, like when we really use kind of laser on 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 the legs or something, it targets the follicle only um, and removes it. So. Um, Could something like that be done to remove the mite? Uh,
4: Yeah, I mean, there's, let me think, there's several ideas that are kind of along those lines. Um, There's a lot of work for mosquito control, which uses these sort of laser mosquito nets. So the mosquito can't fly through this laser mesh because it will be incinerated if it tries to. Although, of course, there's a lot of problems trying to make ones that don't also you know, hurt people when they uh, set them up. But when it comes to mites, um, I know of one particular method, which I think does is already being rolled out, which is a sort of gate with, I think it has like brushes on it. So if a bee is returning or leave it, or especially returning to a hive, and it has vera mite on it, there's this special entrance gate where for the bee to sort of squeeze through, the brushes will remove the mite um, and it won't be able to enter the colony. Um, and so I'm, sh- I'm sure you probably could produce um, like a, sort of a laser version of that. The only issue is that these are both insects. So like the example you gave of like, you know, to deal with a hair follicle on your leg, right? Well, the problem is the varroa mite and the bee, it's likely that something that physically damages the varroa mite is also going to physically damage the bee. And then there's one final issue that affects, I know, this gate idea is that, the mites do cling on to adult bees to move around, but that's not where most of the mites are at any one time. Most of them are in the brood cells internally in the colony, and it's very hard to access the brood cells without you know having the bees do it for you. the, the amount of technology you'd need to be able to open up the brood cells you know and, and direct something against the mites would be immense. And so uh, that's kind of the difficulty I think there.
0: Uh, along, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, because you mentioned the mosquitoes, is there a way to CRISPR to introduce a variety of mites so they cannot uh, reproduce anymore? Along those lines, that what is being tried out right now in Florida, and I think in different places in Africa, um, to use CRISPR basically to um, get rid of the mites.
4: Uh, So you mean the studies where they introduce the sort of infertile, like...
0: Yeah, exactly.
4: Uh, It it might be possible. I mean, in in theory, it should be possible if it is with mosquitoes, as far as I know. I think really, probably, and again, this might actually be research trying to do this, but I think the difference and why it might not be such a, a successful option with Aurora, is because with mosquito populations, for example, the problem is that you have, yeah, this sort of latent mosquito levels that are transmitting disease. And with Varroa mites, it's the mites themselves are causing a lot of the problems. So let's say you introduced um, a population of these, these non-reproductive mites um, into some colonies, for example, you'd get an isolated effect in that apiary if it worked where the mite levels will go down because they're not reproducing however those bees are going out and they're getting exposed to mites from other places so there'd be a kind of replacement because more mites will come in that could reproduce and on top of that the problem again with the inbreeding it's quite likely that if the uh, crispr mediated mechanisms aren't using a very complex large level of you know kind of change to genes that it's going to take a long time to deal with, but they'll start to evolve resistance or start to breed it out very quickly because there's this immense selection pressure and
5: very short generation times. Well, uh, that brings up one little thing, like what if, this might sound silly, but whatever, I'm just gonna say it. What if you bred out like the mites mouth parts and then they all just died eventually, right?
4: Well, it would be hard to stabilize that as in like, if you sort of imagine you came up with a, uh, a mutation in the gene that just this is kind of a, doesn't really make sense as, 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 a, as a concept, but let's say there's a gene that causes the formation of the mouth, mouth parts and if they have a particular allele, they can't have functioning mouth parts. The problem there is that that particular thing is so important to survival that it wouldn't really be able to propagate because they just die as soon as that happens. So you need to be able to somehow spread that covertly into the whole population with no ill effect. And then suddenly it switches on and they all die. Um, I guess that's the difficulty there.
0: Well, we, yeah, I mean, we could use maybe something like optogenetics or something like that to like trigger, uh, you know, like um, gene expression that's dependent on some sort of trigger either Maybe biting, is there maybe something that by biting into the... Yeah, I don't know, there, there might be, but I don't know if it's ethical also to kill all the mites. I'm not sure what we would do to the ecosystem. I think there might be ways to do it, but uh, I don't know how ethical it is. But to give um, from the audience, Dale Brown, he is in Ukraine and he is asking Due to the impact of the war, the bee ecosystem is quite stressed. Uh, is there a way to optimize, the, to basically save the bee ecosystem um, using redevelopment? Or, uh you know, what, what is the, the opportunity to rebuild the ecosystem and then also in the future, to uh, when once Ukraine um, gets opportunity to get rebuilt, uh, to integrate the uh, ecosystem into the architecture or city design as part of a smart uh, city, if they are planned, like, is there designs, are there designs out there or is there any, you know, advice or something for that? Um, I guess, uh
4: in terms of human and bee interactions at the ecosystem level and the threats that bees face, not just honeybees, but really a lot of wild bees and other pollinators, is habitat destruction um, and human activities like agriculture that displace them or reduce the food availability, those kind of things. So I guess if you were rebuilding um, you know, a town or a city or, or any kind of structure, um, in a region like Ukraine, and you were trying to build it back with added benefits for uh, bees and other pollinators, I would say having um, gardens and planting um, species of plants that provide food through pollen and nectar, especially, I mean, native plants, I think that's something that often gets overlooked. So if you are providing these diverse gardens with lots of native flowers in a small area that you would normally need a large area to to produce. That provides these sort of nice little islands of food source for uh, pollinators that in a city could be hard to come by. Um, And so I guess that would be my main recommendation is just planting plants that are good for pollinators is a really easy thing to do. Um, And it's beneficial for bees, but it's also good for people. You know, It's nice to have um, sort of beautiful flowers and such in uh, cities.
1: Thomas, this is Dale. That was my question, so thank you very much. I just want to make sure I uh, articulate one small detail. I'm not in Ukraine, I just support Ukraine, and I'm collecting ideas for rebuilding Ukraine smartly since there's large parts of it that are just completely demolished. They have to start over again. Also, Ukraine is a breadbasket of Europe. They have, they produce a lot of uh, wheat and also a lot of Uh, different types of uh, plants that are in the food system and I was just thinking about I don't know if their bee ecosystem there has been damaged by the war Uh, and I was just thinking about I'm I'm not sure if people who are doing funding to rebuild Ukraine are actually thinking about the pollinator ecosystem and how to revitalize that after the war ends and also because they're If you're looking at smart city rebuilding, a lot of times you'll consider um, personal gardening or other types of green space within a rebuilding since you're building something new. And I didn't know, I don't know much about bees, but I didn't know if there was a way to um, actively incorporate some type of bee ecology into that where the bees and the people could coexist and you get the benefits of the pollinization. So uh, thanks for your expertise, this is Dale.
3: Can I just slip in one more uh, cheeky question, Doctor? Um, well, one thing I'm curious about, you mentioned how the, the mites can actually mutate faster because of the inbreeding and everything, right? Uh, do they get away with that without like breeding themselves into extinction because like are there simpler organisms or something like that?
4: Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Like you say, we normally associate inbreeding Uh, as being a very bad thing that creates all kinds of uh, genetic problems over time and deleterious mutations occur. But I think maybe the way to help understand this is that Varroa as a species, uh, that is its method of reproduction. So whereas for humans and many mammals, inbreeding uh, is not the way that generally, we're we're uh, we're evolved to reproduce, and it quite quickly leads to deleterious consequences. For for varroa mites, that is it's central to their biology. Now, I don't know exactly um, how they are then able to avoid the the build up of of negative mutations and and consequences of inbreeding. I'm sure there is work looking into this, but what I would say is it's. Clearly, there's been very strong selection for Varroa over you know, millennia, as long as they've really existed, um, against things that cause problems in inbreeding. So if, if, it, if it kind of makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, the very fact that that is how they reproduce and always really have, as far as we know, means that it must somehow be stable or they must have mechanisms to stop the bad parts of it um, coming through, so to speak.
3: That is fascinating. That means that they can truly survive with like a, a minimal number of them. That's that's fascinating, thank you.
0: Yeah, I think that's because, you know, but uh, in animals that um, are genetically not very diverse, um, they are um, species that have cancers that are actually passed on by biting or something uh because um they are genetically so um close um that the cancer can actually be um spread like a virus um is there yeah that i don't know if that would be another way of you know instead of using crispr <laughs> using cancer uh, because it takes a little bit to uh you know, it takes some time so there's not this fast uh, reaction so it had some time to spread around and um, and one could actually, if this type of cancer wouldn't affect the bees, have the bees spread that cancer or um, whatever uh, it would be um, to basically kill over time the, all the mites because the bees are the ones that travel around so they would be a quite good um, carrier of something that would basically slowly kill off the mites
4: yeah i mean I, on that point i suppose if we're looking at sort of vectors or things that would you know spread from mite to mite across the mite population and potentially then act over time to to kill them i think well, there's probably viruses and other pathogens that actually infect the Varroa because, well, I mean, there's really a virus or a bacteria for almost anything. Um, but we know very little about that as far as I'm aware. Um, in fact, it was only fairly recently that studies that really showed about whether or not bee viruses like deforming virus can replicate in the mite and whether that affects pathogenicity. That was really sort of not that long ago, really an unknown area. So there's the, the real, I think, conundrum that we face from a scientific perspective is that, like we kind of talked about varroa biology, it's so alien in many ways. We have no, or at least, again, there's very little information, I think, on what would happen if you even could introduce something like this. Because cancer, for example, or various cancers, I mean, obviously it's an umbrella term, but in something like a varroa mite that has a rapid life cycle, it would be a balance between would a cancer ever grow enough to cause it a problem? Or would it have reproduced, lived its whole life and died before it ever happened? I mean, in humans and other animals, we do find cancers, quote unquote, that grow so slowly that they'll never kill a person. Um, and that occurs in other animals as well. And we don't, I guess we don't know, depending on their genetics, can they do they even get cancer? Is that a thing that can even happen? So it, there's a lot of you know, it's really interesting questions. There's just a lot of unknowns here. And I think that's one of the things that makes Varroa so scary, I guess, is that their biology is pretty extreme and very alien from our perspective.
0: Very interesting. Now I would like to, to, to screen Varroa and, and and study their biology, if, you know. Me <laughs>
1: too,
3: I don't me know. too, the fascinating. <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, they are really fascinating. Uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I know we're just putting ideas out there. And they are most of them are very silly. But thank you for having the patience too, to answer all of them. Thank and, you. Um, uh, uh, can yeah, I uh, ask
3: one more? It'd be really, really bad to ask one more. Um, This was just about when you were talking about the, the poline bees and the helium, uh, helium bees that you were, you know, and um, breeding and everything, is is this um the fact that they're more resistant to the mites, um I'm a little bit confused. Like, does this mean that we're only going to have one species of bee then that's going to be resistant, or is polyam like a term that covers multiple species, but just the type of species that are resistant versus the species that aren't? I don't quite understand how it's, uh, does does bees have species? How does that that work? I don't. Yeah, sorry.
4: Um. Yeah, that's a very good question, because I remember when I first started working with bees, I had kind of similar questions about this. Um, right, so bees, which are in the, or honeybees, are in the genus Apis. So that includes European honeybees, Asian honeybees, giant honeybees, which you live in Nepal. You might have perhaps seen some things about those before, they're, they're massive Apis dorsata. And then there's several other species of of uh, honeybees, some smaller, some larger, with different colony sizes. Now, one of those species is the European honeybee, Apis mellifera, and that's the one that generally beekeepers keep in Europe, America, and Asia. Some people keep the Asian honeybee, Apis serrana, but it's less popular because it doesn't produce such large colonies. Um, So it's a single species we have, which are European honeybees, but within that species, there's a lot of different stocks and breeds. So what we can think of that like is like dogs. So dogs, ape oh, is it canis domestica, maybe I, I might be wrong, but let's say dogs as a species are a single species, like you have wolves, they're a dog, I think. And then you have all these different breeds of dogs. They're all the same species, but they're just bred to have different characteristics. Some are large, some are small. There's a great deal of diversity, but they all belong to the same species. That's how we can think of different stocks of bees. So they're all European honeybees, Apis mellifera, but some of them are bred to have some characteristics, like maybe they have large colonies. Others might have other characteristics, more or less aggressive. Um, Africanized bees, you've probably heard of those. They're the same species, but they're a sort of ecotype. So like a subgroup within the species that are very adapted to survive well in many of the African regions. And one of the things about them is that they're super aggressive because of elephants. So Within the species of European honeybees, we have these different stocks and breeds that are bred for different reasons. So what I guess we're suggesting is that we take the resistant bee stock and that can be bred with other stocks. You know, you can cross a cocker spaniel with a chihuahua, you know, and you get a kind of mix between the two. You could do that with polline bees. Um, but what it really allows you to do is we can breed in some beneficial genetics to any kind of stock within the same species. I don't know whether that completely covers it, but I think that...
3: Uh, Yeah, that actually does. So you've got, like, uh, the honeybees, but then there'll be the polline honeybees and the non-polline honeybees and the polline Asian bees and the non-polline Asian... That's what you're talking about, right? And letting them slowly all become resistant to that. That's what I'm understanding you're saying, yeah?
4: Right, and if you're a beekeeper, you often just buy a particular stock. You buy queens. So let's say I want to start up an operation. I could just buy polline or another stuff that's resistant to Varroa, and then i can keep breeding those and propagating them more i could mix them with other bees or i could just keep them as they are and see what happens absolutely fascinating um, thank you so much thank you so much
0: um yeah i have a i'm sorry but i have another question you said that the behavior is also very important right to become resistant um to um the mites right uh, i don't want to assume something wrong for the question
4: uh, yeah that's right
0: so can you train uh, the behavior because you know having a probably a high variety in gene pool for the future is probably important so maybe we want i don't know if there's the thought of you know preventing of just having one subtype of species in the future if everyone just you know create um uses those um is there a way of training the behavior does it and if like, is the behavior fully genetic? Uh, if the training does it pass on? So, can you create basically um, a bee culture that gets passed on to the next generation? Uh,
4: so, I think. What you're asking then is uh, the behavior of mite resistance. So in this case, opening up infested cells and getting rid of the mites, is that purely genetic or is it sort of something that they learn, you know, to do it? Can it be kind of trained in and then you pass that on? Well, it is genetic. I mean, we know this because we've identified several of the genes involved in it. And we know that if you take poline bees that have never seen mites before, they instantly know what to do. But the reason it's genetic is that it's not the behavior that's being coded for in their genes. Actually, the genetics is about them just being able to detect the mites. Because the problem that most of the European honeybees have is the mites are there and they're being eaten alive, but they don't even know that they're there because it seems anyway, it's likely the mites copy the hydrocarbon profile of the bees, which they use for recognition. And so they don't know the mites are there, even though it's obvious. So what? Pole line and other many other resistant stocks do is that they seem to be able to respond to various cues that suggest that mites are present. In the case of pole line bees, uh, we're not yet 100% sure, but we think that they're responding to the brood producing the brood producing some kind of chemical signal that says, "Hey, I'm infested," and then the worker bees, as anyone really would, the minute they know there's a problem, they'll they'll act upon. And then that, of course, can be passed through. The ability to detect that is passed genetically, and so you can continue to propagate it over time.
3: It did say in your paper that um, the the veroa was associated with um, different pathologies and behavioural change in the bees. Actually, so I was actually wondering what behavioural changes did they cause in the bees?
4: Um, yeah. So ooh, there's a lot of there's a lot of things, but I suppose some of the interesting things are that if varroa infest brood and transmit deformed wing virus um so there are various strains of it but if they transmit enough deformed wing virus what happens is when the brood emerge their wings are completely crippled and they're alive but they can't you know do the job of a worker bee and so they end up being a kind of just burden eventually they'll die but often you have colonies where many of the workers are sort of Incapacitated to a point that they can't do their job but they still require food and that level of sort of behavioral change um, in terms of the composition of the colony could be pretty bad and can sort of build up over time. Uh, on top of that you, you do have uh, various other behaviors that the bees will use to respond to uh, varromites because sometimes they to an extent are able to detect signs but Overall, the key problems we're really facing are proliferation of disease uh, and inability to detoxify uh, other environmental um, inputs that they're getting because of all the sort of fat body or uh, damage to the to the workers.
3: Katerina, are we are we going to let the doctor go in a minute before we actually ask him
5: more? Yes, I, I could, do, I could do, <laughs> I this I I do this all day. I all day.
0: I'm so sorry for asking all these questions. And probably most of them are quite, you know, coming from uh, ignorance about bees and their ecosystem. So I really appreciate the patience you have answering our questions. And um, thank you so much for your presentation and for your work. And I wish you all the funding <laughs> and <laughs> all the luck <laughs> <laughs> and that low bureaucracy have. we we are cheering you on um uh, please never give up uh, on the bees and uh, i hope um the world is treating your research and yourself right so you don't give up on it ever. And, that definitely, uh, yeah. that is
3: so good thank you so much this has been absolutely fascinating doctor absolutely fascinating
4: well, it's been a pleasure to uh, to talk on it. It's always nice to have um, some good questions because a lot of the time they're things that, that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily think about. And then when someone asks it, you kind of think, oh, yeah, do, do we actually know the answer to that? You know, is that worth um, investigating? But, yeah, it's been really fun and a nice different format as well. Just having the audio only uh, quite a pure <laughs> We'll Had to do it, but um I'm yeah. So I'm probably gonna head off to the pub now. So it was a pleasure <laughs> talking to you. Oh,
3: enjoy. <laughs>
4: that sounds good. Ha, have one for us, and um, we hope you come
3: back sometime soon. Because we'll probably, when you find anything else, please, please come back. We'll have more questions for you. Yep,
0: exactly. <laughs> Great. So okay. yeah, enjoy your weekend. Happy you Friday, too. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Happy
3: Friday. Have a good Bye weekend, everyone. Up.
1: Bye, everybody. Thanks so
0: much. Thank you,
1: everyone. Nice to see you.
5: Thank
0: you, Dale. And thank you, Z, for the picture, for changing it to the bee. (laughs) Oh,
1: well,
5: this, I will say, look, I caught this picture yesterday. I've been looking to take a picture of the bumblebee eating off of the black gum Nissa sylvatica uh, wild tupelo tree, and I caught it yesterday after five years, so... This is amazing. Thomas, thank you. I love you all dearly. And I'm just going to shut my mic off now. Thank you.
0: Yeah, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> thank you. What a coincidence. That's perfect. Um, yeah. Thank you, everyone, for asking questions. Um, and um, we have a room at 5.30 with Krishna. You met her. Uh, she, she and Paris. Uh, he's a, a, a editor for a scientific journal. They will give some advice how to write um, a, a scientific article. Um, so if you're interested in that, um, you know tips, advice, and how to do that well, uh, come back at five thirty p.m. EST. Um. So um. Yeah. And thank you so much. Enjoy your weekend. Um. And um. Yeah. I hope we'll have amazing, happy days. Uh. In the future, thanks to Thomas. So, thank you, Thomas. And uh, bye, everyone. <laughs> I'll close the room in three, two, one. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Be good. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>
5: bye.